Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, this is a good time to put it in the saved folder and come back whenever you're ready. Otherwise, let's go. Welcome back. On this episode, Reimagining Community, how we form it, maintain it, hold it accountable, reconcile it, and how we discard it, if it gets to that. We discuss one of the biggest challenges we face moving through life and all of its stages, and we'll talk with Dr. Sabrina Dent about her lived experience, Reimagining Community. This Okay, let's do a spicy opinion. Spicy opinion number one. In a world of limitless possibilities when it comes to white fragility, anti-CRT, school parents, heterosexism, Christian nationalism, it's more common that someone saying they have issues with wokeness is shorthand for, you're challenging my beliefs and actions, which makes me uncomfortable. That I take being challenged, especially by someone who I believe to have less power and capacity than me, as a threat. So I push back. Here's another one. You're making me think about how my beliefs and attitudes in action are making lives literally hellscapes for other people. And I don't want to let those go because that would make me question my entire existence. Shout out to Jessica Sanders and our show's co-creator Verdell Wright for those two. Okay, y'all, it's story time. So just a few weeks ago, I was at Washington, D.C.'s Eastern Market with a good friend of mine on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. We were walking around visiting the shops and I came across this lovely white woman canvassing for the primary of the next mayoral candidate. And the candidate happens to be a black man. Now I mentioned white and black, but neither of their races are necessarily relevant to what happened next. Not necessarily. So the lady stopped me and we started to talk about her candidate. She asked me if I was registered to vote and began to talk about his views on affordable housing and homelessness in the area, an issue that the DC government has had quite a lot of challenges with over the last few years between urban development, gentrification, displacement, and all of the advocacy groups that exist out there for homeless individuals. And she also talked about mental health care and how that ties into these things. I nodded in agreement, we kept talking, having what was a lovely conversation, and I also mentioned to her my work with nonprofit organizations and efforts to help address these and other related issues here in DC. We continued a friendly exchange and agreed on these issues and opining about what DC needs. Eventually, she asked me, what type of nonprofit work do you do? Good question. Here we go. Well, I work with various organizations in the religious freedom space dealing with church and state issues. I was intentionally vague. Like what, she says. 
Well, one of them is called Black Not Believers of DC, and we work to provide community support and education for humanists, those identifying as atheists, agnostics, and skeptics, and so forth. We're part of a larger community, and we work with other organizations to help maintain a healthy separation of church and state, if nothing else, under the, the idea of religious freedom. And regarding homelessness, we've worked with organizations like Stand Up For Kids to help address the needs of homeless youth here in the city, often LGBT kids who have been in crisis and thrown out from their family. As I said that, her eyes glaze over and her once friendly smile turned flat. She was arrested in her formerly cordial demeanor. Well, I still believe, but you know, she said. I paused and looked at her quizzically. That's okay. Then she says, Black churches are so much fun. I mean, y'all, y'all are the ones who are doing all the political work. Y'all have that history, right? I mean, going to a black church is exciting. I mean, y'all got the clapping and the singing and it's so energetic. But white churches, you know, we just sit around and we're just so boring and blah, blah, blah. And she physically mimed a boring church lady sitting in a pew in a bit of physical comedy. Me, slightly uncomfortable with her premise, say, well, actually... I wouldn't say all black churches are political like that. She interrupts me. I mean, white churches don't really do anything. They just sit there. As if she's trying to convince me that there's no need for a secular community or activism of any kind. So I speak up. That's actually not true. In, in fact, a lot of the work that we do in this space deals with issues that are being brought up to the Supreme Court just a few blocks down the way by white evangelicals and religionists, and specifically, there is a documented trend over the last 10 years of the Supreme Court ruling in favor of Christian religious groups and ignoring previous standards for church and state separation. I, I tried, I couldn't resist. And now she looks even more uncomfortable, confronted by someone who isn't being confrontational, but is just countering her misperceptions. She's fidgety and now trying to inch away from the space in which she was formerly comfortable talking with me with a seeming amount of infinite time. Well, the Catholic Church, yes, they are the problem. They've messed up the religion. I, I tell you, the Catholics, uh, she counters with easy bait. Well, true, I said. Easy to concede. See, I believe there is a God, and there's there's got to be something bigger than us, but it's the Catholic Church. Now, they're evil. The Catholic Church, I got to tell you. My response? Yeah, the Catholic Church, yeah, it's, you know... I can't disagree, but it's not just them. People like to make it seem like it's other white churches that aren't involved in these types of efforts, but that's not really true. By this point, I was calm, and I was just really starting to get into the conversation with some depth with her, but she didn't seem to have the, the range for that kind of conversation. The conversation was so hopeful and friendly before that, until I mentioned that I work with a nonprofit group that happens to work with non-believers and represent them in a formal secular community. I gotta tell you, this is pretty typical for me. And so many other people and activists and secular folks who end up having to navigate these uncomfortable conversations for other people, people who are threatened to the core by your own existence and presence in the world as a participating member of your community and body politic. All they hear is atheist and everything shuts down. It was almost as if she felt like me saying that I was a non-believer was an invitation to debate the topic of God, as opposed to talking about how we can come together in service of the people in our community, the least among us, 
the homeless, and the people who we choose to represent us. Which, after all, was her purpose for being on the corner in the first place, to stump for the next mayoral candidate. I shouldn't be surprised by any of this, but the truth is, I'm still surprised. So many conversations with believers go like this. People are friendly, they're happy to chat with you, without end, unless and until you mention that you don't believe. On a good day, conversations like this just end with a whimper. On a bad day, you're trapped in a debate where someone thinks that you are actively confronting them and making them disbelieve in God. When all you're doing is talking about yourself, independent of who they are and what they believe. And that's how this white lady at Eastern Market could tell me that the only thing that distinguishes white churches from black churches are the music or the animism of the members of that church. Not the hundreds of years of pro-slavery theology or confederate preachers preaching in church on Sunday morning and fighting in the evening. And certainly not the good Catholic, Protestant, or Mormon churches around the country just trying to stick to themselves and stay out of politics and legislating who can have a, a child or who can get married or who can have access to health care or elder care services. Not those types of churches. I believe that at the root of our ability to reimagine anything is learning through observation plus empathy plus humility. This can equal a kind of solidarity that we really need in our spaces and in our communities more than ever. But it's also predicated on prior knowledge and the fact that when we do things differently, when we ignore, when we debase, demean, or deny the humanity of our neighbors, when we put faith in our dogmas, biases, and preconceptions above the lived experiences of people standing right before us, in front of us, we create a kind of moral injury and we create problems for ourselves that hold us back as a community. To listen to someone tell a story of suicide ideation, depression, sickness and diseases, joblessness or abuse, and to say to them, I don't care because my faith says so and so, is to insist that human beings negotiate with you to be recognized as human because of fealty to a holy book or an unwillingness to imagine and learn new things. The result? People will carry those injuries and those words for a lifetime as they reverberate and replicate themselves, causing further injury and a material loss to the individual. That is a rejection of humanity and community itself. You know, people talk about globalization to discuss industry and economies and the workforce around the world in different countries, but globalization also has some very strong cultural implications on how we live and relate to one another as community. Whatever tensions we have around which cultural artifacts should be preserved, which should be discarded, our values around wealth and poverty, they're all aspects of life ultimately impacting each and every one of us in community in material ways. And what we decide to do with that tension, or whether we can even recognize it, is going to severely impact how we relate to each other and how we survive as we move forward in our individual and global community in the 21st century. Check this out. Put the individual at the center of reality. So we talk about what's good for humanity. It's almost like, well, is it good for the trees? Is it good for the earth? Is it good for the fish? Is it good for the ground? No, human beings were given dominion over all that. Okay, so here we go. We're going down that path. Huh? Humanity is at the center of reality. That is not the way everybody in the world saw that. In fact, that is the way a minority of people in the world saw it. And if you see it that way, then the next logical step 
in the West was to say, well, since humans are at the center of all reality, within humanity, there must be a ranking of which humans are the definition of human and which others fall outside that definition and rank order. Well, you've set yourself up for patriarchy because if the center of humanity means maleness in that Western, in that European worldview, then there's nothing Kataji Brown Jackson can do to be human. There's nothing she can do. I don't care whether you went to, if you're a double alum of Ivy League, you could be 50 times the alum of the Ivy League. I don't care. There's nothing you can do. This is happening, and it's nothing new. You know, we're old enough to remember Schoolhouse Rock. So I showed my class, because we were talking about Manifest Destiny and Settler Colonialism in the context of the laws of the states as they moved west. So we looked at the compromises of 1820 and 1850. We looked at the original Fugitive Slave Act, which is in the damn Constitution, 1787, so forth. And I said, but you know what? Before we go back to these statutes, I'm going to give y'all the shorthand they gave us when we were sitting eating our cornflakes or, or puffed rice or cream of wheat or whatever on Saturday morning when there was only three television channels and TV went off at night. And then Saturday morning, if you missed it, it wasn't no VCR to record it. And I pressed on YouTube, elbow room, elbow room, elbow room. Got to, got to get you some elbow room. It's the West or bust. Yes. In God we trust. There's a new land out there. <laughs> and so they looking West. The traders, trappers, and the settlers, the politicians and the peddlers, they got there by any way they could, any way they could. And then so they show this white family on the covered wagon, cartoon white family going away. And then they say there were plenty of fights to win land rights. And then you see an arrow come and shoot the white boy through his cowboy hat and the, and the, and the, and late and the wife got the Bible clutching it with the baby and they in the cover wagon. Then you see the cover wagon keep going and you'll see the forest disappearing and the squares start forming as they put their little houses, cabins in the middle. It said, the West was meant to be. It was a manifest destiny. <laughs> in other words, and after it was over, I said, what y'all think? And in the chat, it was like, wow. Wow, WTF, WTF. I said, this is what we learned. God told us to get the land. Corey, Brother Booker, Senator Booker. This shit is a criminal enterprise, bruh. Every time you say we are better than this, I know what you're trying to do. but And you're too smart to believe that BS. Including that fake accent, John Kennedy, who you call brother. I get that, but you're defending the sister. But do you understand that patriarchy is the reason that you think you have to, quote unquote, defend somebody who's more qualified to be anything than all of y'all in the room? And number two, it's the reason why we praising you for doing it. Do y'all understand? <laughs> Hold on. Boy, when I asked my students what they thought and they deconstructed that context and we started talking about patriarchy and whiteness and the fact that this sister is sitting there more qualified than everybody breathing in the room to ask her a question. And the fact that we then say, see, he stood up and I was so proud and I started crying tears. I thought about Neely Fuller, everything you think you understand will only confuse you if you don't understand white supremacy. So again, when we're talking about the agenda, when Milheiser writes, he talks about this, this imbalance. Please understand that as they added states to this criminal enterprise, they kept the two senators in the upper chamber, which always going to have a check on the lower chamber. So even if you expand voting rights, it's still got to get through the Senate. And those the majority of those states that are going to be problematic have very few people in them. They have put in place an apartheid state that is set up for white minority rule before there was even enough people to think about white minority rule beyond enslavement. 
So here we are in 2022 with white minority rule. The only shot you might have of breaking white minority rule is to reconstruct the federal legislature or move to those places where they got two senators and not enough people who are going to be for humanity as opposed to whiteness. My little run-in with the woman at Eastern Market is just a reminder of how much work we have left to do. A reminder of the amazing lack of historical or institutional memory around harmful theologies and organizing power in the name of God that have actively worked against the liberation and equity of women, black and indigenous citizens, LGBT people and queer parents, just to name a few. It preserves Christianity, or any faith for that matter, from ever being scrutinized and from any negative conclusions being drawn when there is clear and documented history of legislative involvement for hegemonic power at work in the law, in our bedrooms, our schools, and our healthcare providers. If religion can be reduced to just which church has the more lively service or the difference in customs between church denominations, then it's much less likely that it can ever be regarded as anything other than a force for good or a benign cultural force. And we know that is not the case. So here to give us insight and her lived experience on what this means is my friend, allied to our community, interfaith and religious freedom advocate, Dr. Sabrina Dent. We met a few years ago when she was doing work with the Religious Freedom Forum. She's also worked with Americans United and was most recently named president of the Center for Faith, Justice and Reconciliation based in Richmond, Virginia. This is going to be a two-part episode, but when we come back, we'll get into reimagining community and joining into the Legacy Program from 2020 with Dr. Sabrina Dent. Guess what? We've got mail. Or should I say, Where We're Headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback, give us a compliment, or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast.com at gmail.com that's bndcpodcast at gmail.com and once again our show website is www.podbean.com okay no lie the Puritan one with Paula child this is fire I'm telling you y'all got me fired up I I can relate today and, and and deeply honored um, that I would be in part, um, invited to participate in um, this legacy series. So thank you so much and thank you for everyone that has joined today's conversation. Um, what I'll do is I'll share my screen with you um, to, to really engage us in today's topic. And so we're going to talk about reimagining communities. 
Okay, so like I said, today's topic is reimagining community. And so um, I have centered here a photo of, of some of my friends that I have on my journey learned to reimagine my community as it relates to um, the people that hold me accountable and hold me in care. And so we'll talk a little bit about that um, now. So Key terms are um, reimagining and community. For the sake of today's conversation, what I want us to think about is what I mean by, I didn't mean to move that slide, but to move my box at the top, excuse me one second. Okay, what I mean by reimagining is a new way of thinking, engaging, and experiencing the world around you or, or the world around us. Um, also, what I'm talking about when I say community is I'm referring to the people who hold you in care and hold you accountable. Those that you know you could turn to in times of trouble as well as in moments of celebration. So I start every presentation by asking people, how do you enter this conversation? Like, who are you? And so I wanted to give you all a little bit more about who I am as I enter into this discussion with you today. And so before we do that, one of the things that you have to remember is as we engage in any discussion, we carry with us many identities, um, whether it is our age, our gender, our sexual orientation, whether it's our religion or worldview, um, it could be our class, ethnicity, education, as you can see, there's a list of things. And so as we move through this presentation, I want you to think about um, like what are the most important identities to you? And I'm going to share that and you'll see that in my presentation. This is adapted by the Essentials of Dialogue. Um, it is a resource that was created uh, by the Tony Blair Institute, um, and it's an incredible foundation that does a lot of work around dialogue and understanding other people's perspectives. And so, um, so I use that a lot in the work that I do. And so I'll tell you a little bit more about who I am. So first of all, I am a black mother. I am the mother of a black son. Um, I am a native of Petersburg, Virginia. Um, I will tell anybody that my son is my favorite person in the world. Um, he is a big part of my community. And so um, I often center myself and center the conversation by saying, this is who I am. But this is not all of who I am. My foundation is my family. So I am the daughter of Thurdell and Larry Dent. I'm a native of Petersburg, Virginia. Very proud to be a native of Petersburg, Virginia. It is a predominantly African-American um, city. Um, there's a lot of history there. The siege took um, took place there. Um, so there's a lot of rich history around race, racial tension as well as um, economic inequalities that are happening. Um, so there's so much that I could tell you about my hometown, um, but also I am the sibling of LaQuinta and Steven. Um, as you can see, my, my siblings are pictured there with me when we were younger, as well as I am the granddaughter of Geraldine and Kiever Dent. That is my father's parents. And I am the great granddaughter of Bishop Howard Dent, as well as um, Sister Mary. Um, additionally, I am the granddaughter of Rebecca Fleming. 
Fleming. Um, Rebecca Fleming is my mom's um, my mom's adoptive mom. Her biological mom is Mary Bass, who is also my grandmother. Um, I share all this because it's important to know the layers of my identity and which and and how I come into this conversation. So I say more about this to add that. I am the daughter of a Pentecostal preacher. Um, my dad um, is a Pentecostal preacher. My grandfather, Kiever Dent, was a Baptist deacon. My my great my grandfather my great grandfather, um, Bishop Howard Dent, was um, was also a holiness um, bishop, and he founded a church in Reduco, North Carolina. Um, but in addition to that, I am also the great 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 granddaughter of an AME bishop from. Um, Africa. So there are layers to my identity. But then I'm also, like I said, the granddaughter of Rebecca Fleming, who was not a very religious woman. And she was one that didn't take any stuff from anybody. So I have the fabric of her in my being as well. So my religious communities of influence have like been shaped by many different things. So you see pictured here, um, this is my childhood church in Petersburg, Virginia. Um, this is really critical that I bring this up because it is the foundation. Like I said, I come from a Pentecostal household. My dad was a preacher. So I had a very strict upbringing um, as it pertains to what I was able to do. Below that picture, you see, uh, we're pictured with my mom at a Pentecostal conference that took place in Richmond, Virginia. And um, so, yeah, so a lot of my childhood was wearing like clothes like that and, um, and being with my mom and being with my dad because my entire life as a child was either church school or Girl Scouts. Um, but that helped shape me into um i was uh, that that was my foundation but eventually it moved me to see this um this like word art image that you have before you that identifies who I am now. I identify as a spiritual person. I have been a part of many different communities, some of which who stand out in this image that you see. So yes, I was raised Pentecostal, but eventually I ended up in the Baptist church. Um, I was once married to a Haitian Catholic. I also practiced Scientology and um, I was a big part of the interfaith community and even at one point ended up in Kojic and yes there's a difference between the different denominations of Pentecostalism as well so um, and then also I practice um, Buddhist meditation with my son I'm very intentional about bringing my son into the spaces in which um, helps shape who my who shaped me as a spiritual being If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our Legacy Video Program Archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc., all one word, directly. You can find every Legacy video from Season 1 and Season 2 there, plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you online.
But there were many precipitating events in my life that helped me to get here. So you saw my foundation, but then you saw the image that I put up before you. So how did I get here? So here are a few precipitating events that took place in my life. One way in which I've learned to reimagine community was being at Virginia Tech. Um, at Virginia Tech, I engaged a new community. Um, in, the, in the picture, uh, you see, uh, there's a lot of my friends from when we went to, back to a Black alumni event. That was very central to my identity at Virginia Tech. If you know anything about Virginia Tech, it's a predominantly white institution. Um, at the time, there were 25,000 students there. Only about 1,000 of us were people of color. So we really held our community in care. Um, a, a precipitating event for me at Virginia Tech was um, my freshman English class. I remember getting the syllabus and the professor saying that we had to read the book um, The Power of Myth by Bill Moores. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then also he, um, he had us to read the Tao. And I was confused because I was, uh, that's not what I was expecting from my freshman English class. What I was expecting, I don't know, was more Shakespeare and some other, um, some other pieces of literature. But he had us to read these books um, that helped us to look at religion. And for me, it was the first time that I felt like I had permission to look at something outside of my religion. So keeping in mind, I grew up Pentecostal. It was like fire and brimstone, heaven and hell. It was like the Bible. That's it. Um, so to go into this freshman English class, where Professor Sean was saying, you know, I want you to read this. And I actually remember my final project in, um, in my final project for his class, I actually did research on Satanism and the image of, and the importance of the imagery of the goat. It was like so much um, that, yeah, I was really liberated to do all kinds of research during that time. And I remember it made it easier for me to say to my parents, but this is a part of my schoolwork. This is what I have to do. So, um, so that was a precipitating event. Um, also, another was a sophomore year. My dad sent me a Talmud, and I was so confused because I was like, "Why is my dad sending me the book for the code of the code of ethics or code of living for Jewish people?" And it was um, it was baffling to me that, he, and he had it marked. I remember he had the section on the role of women marked for me, and I was just so confused. But again, I saw that as an opportunity um, to really inquire more, and it gave me more per permission to look elsewhere. And then um, one of the things that helped me critically in helping me to imagine community and think about things is my undergraduate studies was in residential property management. And so if you know anything about property management, one of the things is that with property management, you have to treat everyone fairly. And that should be the case in life, period. But, um, but you know, you have this legal mandate uh, with like fair housing laws and everything that says, Every person that walks in your door needs to be treated the same way. Every person that walks in your door matters. And so that was very critical in shaping my thinking. Not that I didn't believe that before, because my parents were the type that, although they were very Pentecostal and still are, 
that they taught me compassion and they taught me how to care for community in different ways. So I often saw my father like feeding people if they needed something, um, if they were homeless, like he would ask them, he would engage them in conversations and not ask them anything about their religion. He was more concerned about the person. And so I valued that for my parents. But my undergraduate studies helped me think even more deeply about the ethical nature and the legal nature of how we treat individuals. Another precipitating event for me was moving to New Jersey. By this time, I was in my career of property management. And I was living here in the DMV area, um, specifically working in Maryland, and I was ready for a change. And my employer gave me the opportunity to transfer to New Jersey for a little bit of time for the summer. I was only supposed to be there for a summer, but I fell in love with New Jersey. So I stayed there for eight years. Um, but a part of being in New Jersey was about expanding my understanding and my community. Um, so the two images that you see here is um, the one image under New Jersey, you see um, some friends of mine, some of my girlfriends um, that I met when I became a part of a Baptist church in New Jersey. And they became really good friends. Um, and they helped me to re-understand, um, reimagine community for me because I didn't have any family in New Jersey. I was by myself. But, and so the other image is actually my first family that I had in New Jersey, which was um, a group I was a part of called Tag Team. And one of the things that helped me in terms of reimagining a community that connected back to my undergraduate experiences, you know, being at a predominantly white institution, one of the things is, again, you held closely to your community of people in terms of people of color, specifically African-Americans. I was involved in the Black Student Alliance, and I would also attend other programs for other African um, student organizations um, as, and also the NAACP. But Tag Team gave me a deeper sense of pride of my Black identity. Um, and so it was a network marketing group. We were selling telecom. But for me, it wasn't about the telecom. It was about the community. It was about seeing like black people want to thrive and to grow and to expand and it was in my engagement in um tag team that I was actually introduced to Scientology. And so I studied Scientology for a, for a number of years. I took classes there. Um, I know that my parents were kind of like, what? Especially my mom was kind of like, what are you doing? Um, but it was a part, it introduced me again to a new way of thinking. And a critical person in that time of my life was meeting Sloan Lee. So Sloan Lee is not pictured here, but Sloan Lee was a friend that I met. If anybody is um, around my age, then you remember Black Planet. So I met Sloan via Black Planet. And when we met, he, he didn't talk about God. He didn't talk about religion. He talked about the universe and he talked about aliens. And like, I could get with that. And the reason why I could get with that is because my mom, who um, growing up, she had us watch Star Trek. So she had us to believe that there's life out there elsewhere. And again, so I, it wasn't so weird to me to meet someone to have a different perspective, but he helped me to gain a deeper sense of why I need to hold all community and care. And um, there was some point in my life where, uh, unfortunately, because of religion, 
that I almost lost my friendship with Sloan. And um, as you can see, it's very emotional for me to even talk about that. Um, and it, but it helped me to become a better advocate for the work that I do today. Um, at that time in my life, you know, I was just like, um, I heard a sermon and the, the, the sermon, the preacher basically said um, that it's from the Ecclesiastes scripture when you talk about there's a time to love, there's a time to hate. And I remember the preacher saying, there's a time to hate anything that would separate you from God and your relationship with God. And I took that literally, and that is so scary. And, um, and it, it caused a rift in my relationship with Sloan, not because of him, but because of me. And that changed my perspective as a person because I was like, I never, want religion to get between me and another person that I genuinely and deeply care about. Um, as a friend, as a colleague, as a support system, someone that be had become part of my family. But I shaped my, my opinions even shaped even more deeply as I worked at a DV shelter in northern New Jersey. And so again, I'm coming in contact with people that are in crisis, people that are in need, I didn't care about their religious identity. I cared about their humanity. I cared about their needs and their concerns. In my role at the shelter, I was the children's advocate. I served as the director of children's programs. And so I did everything I could to advocate for the needs and the concerns of the women and children that I engaged that had nothing to do with their religion. It had all to do with their humanity. So you're talking about undocumented people. You're talking about women of color. You're talking about people that are on the margins, maybe because of their, you know, because of their education or social economic status. So again, it helped me to become a better person. At the same time, I was navigating my call to ministry and I remember a precipitating event for me was, um, at the time I was a lay leader in a church. I had just accepted my call to ministry. And one of the things in the church is that there's the expectation that you will be at church on Sunday. You will be there for every event that takes place. And so, um, what happened was I I had been I had enrolled in a seminary course in in New York at New York Theological Seminary and um, I was looking to get a job and um, if we have a time another time maybe in the the after chat I could tell more about that story but um, I had accepted my call to ministry and and I had an opportunity to take a job this is crazy but so real one day a week answering the hotline for this shelter. This is before I became the children's program director. And I decided that for me, what ministry looked like was being able to answer the phone for someone that needed help. And, and, and at the time, the person that was in leadership at the church was kind of like, mm, and I was like, mm, this is like, for me, let's, let's reimagine ministry. Ministry is not just going to church, it's about helping people, for me. And so I took a job one day a week just to answer the hotline to be there for people. So that was a precipitating event that helped me to reimagine how I care about community and understand community. Then seminary changed all that. I went to seminary at the Samuel D. Proctor School of Theology. And in this time in my life, 
I had to establish a new community. I was a new divorcee. I had left New Jersey and um, come back home to uh, Virginia, um, the Richmond, Virginia area. Um, I was a new mom. My son at the time was like six months when I moved back. And now I was a student in seminary because I felt the strong call to um, to be educated about ministry, right? And what, what, it, what it meant to me. But I realized very quickly that I had to find my voice in my new community within seminary because of course, seminary was designed for um, people that are on a vocational journey, you know, and exploring their theologies and ideas around Christianity. And I was too. But at the same time, I had already had a broader sense of my community because I had already done the, I had already gone to a Buddhist temple. I had already uh, been a part of Scientology. I had already married someone that was a part of a different religious identity. So I had to reimagine some things for myself, even within that community. So if you look under the image seminary, you see there's um, a few people sitting at the table there. Those are the people that became a part of my intimate community. Um, so we all went through seminary together. We all um, earned our master's of divinity together. We all, most of us actually earned our doctorate of ministry degrees as well. What I appreciate about my friends there is that although I thought very differently about ministry and about what community looked like, they still embraced me and they, they even considered my and and so it was something that I really appreciated in my life. Um, but during that time, I also started leaning more towards interfaith engagement, like in a more um, in a more organized sense. So I became a part of the interfaith um, community of Greater Richmond at the time. It was called the Interfaith Council Greater Richmond. And um, as you can see, it's a very seasoned group of people. Um, I was at the time was probably the youngest and the most active a participant. Um, I was third. I was in my it was like mid to late thirties um, at the time. And I, I felt embraced by this community because they knew nothing of me. What led me there was um, Dr. John um, W. Kenny, who was the dean at the Samuel D. Proctor School of Theology, recognized that I had a different way of looking at um, life and ministry. And he encouraged me to do a comparative um, a comparative study on religions. And he said, well, what religions do you want to study? And I said, well, Buddhism and Christianity, let's look at that. And so I did everything I could to engage in communities that were different from what I was familiar with. And so I became a part of ICGR by attending many of their events. Uh, what I find fascinating about this community is that they embraced me for who I, I was and they saw me as, they were like, whoa, you're really interfaith, not just in name, but you really practice this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I try, to, I try to, I try to live what I, you know, believe. And so, um, but also it was fascinating because when I joined the organization, they had a policy that said, or it was like a guideline or a rule, I should say, um, that, you know, you had to identify with one of the religious communities that were there. And I was like, I don't, I, I don't want to. Like, I don't want to be boxed in. And so they created a member at large category for me to even be a part of the organization. And then they were willing to vote me in as the president after I'd been in there for two years. So I served as president for two years. So again, I, I reimagined and I established a new community. But then I became a BJC fellow. 
And again, I had to reimagine my community. So the BJC Fellows is a it's a fellow it's a week long fellowship that's hosted by the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And so in 2015, they had inaugural cohort of fellows, which I was invited to be a part of this cohort. And so that is where I really became an advocate for religious freedom. But I was challenged by the fact that there was this invisibility factor. Like I was seen, but my story wasn't seen. And what I mean by that is when we were initially introduced to the information, it was through the lens, of course, of white America. And my concern with that was um, there was a brilliant book that we had to read um, uh, that was written by Michael Michael Meyerson, and the book is called Endowed by the Creator. And it talks about the brilliance of the founders in terms of writing this document around religious freedom and thinking about these ideas. And I remember saying to uh, Charles Watson, who was, um, who is the director of education at the BJC, uh, he was the coordinator for the fellows. I remember like, leading up to that event, I was reading the book and I called him and I said, Charles, did you read this book? And he was like, yes, I read it. I said, Charles, don't you think something's missing from this book? And he was like, uh, I'm not sure. And I was like, Charles, this book doesn't mention that the founders of the, of the founders, the founding framers were slaveholders. It doesn't mention this. It doesn't tell the story about Black people in America. Like, why is this not here? And Charles was like, Sabrina, the book is not about that. I said, but it needs to be mentioned. And so I struggled in my week at the fellowship, embracing, I struggled not because I couldn't embrace the ideas, I did, but my thing was, we need to retell the story of freedom as it relates to religious freedom in, in this country. And so I remember we had opportunities to like, you know, have some downtime. And I was intentional about finding every opportunity to engage in the storytelling that was told from the perspectives of Black people and African Americans. And so you see pictured here are some of the storytellers that told stories of um, enslaved communities and what they thought about and the distinction between the enslaved people's idea of heaven versus the slave owners and they were fascinating stories um, at the same time i do want to point to a central figure that's in the middle of the group there um, who is gowan pamphlet um, gowan pamphlet was like one of the first Black Baptists to be accepted in the community. And one, one of the things that's significant about his story to me is like, it was almost like I was relieved when I walked into the room and saw him as an interpreter. Like I tried not to cry because I was like, okay, there is someone that is in this program that looks like me, that is from a historical perspective that's telling the story. But he told this story about like Gowan Pamphlet and receiving the right hand of fellowship and how like his religious community, you know, although Christians were saying, oh, you know, everyone's, you know, a brother or everyone is accepted by the creator, yet they were still dismissing a whole group of people, like several groups, not just black people because they didn't like Irish too. So, um, but, uh, but it's important for me to point that out. But Gowan Planfitt told the story about the right hand of fellowship and how he made this argument to them that if you're saying that I am to follow this religion, if you're saying this, then you need to fully embrace me as a human being in this, um, in this story. 
And so when they extended to him what is known in the church as the right hand of fellowship is like when you join a church or you join that community is their way of welcoming you into it. It, it Gowan Pamphlet talked about how for him, it wasn't about being just welcomed into his religious community, but it was about being accepted as a human being. And so like that story stuck with me and it's like about this acceptance of being a human being. Thanks for listening. We're going to put a pause right here, but we're going to come back on the next episode. So we hope you'll join us in this conversation about religious freedom and religious pluralism in the conclusion of Reimagining Community. Mm